0: Good morning again. Uh, we're going to finish our series on reforging this morning. This is the last sermon of that series because we're starting the book of Exodus next week. I also meant to mention this during the welcome, but so that you guys know, we're going to have two baptisms next Sunday as well. Really excited about that. Uh, so you'll want to make sure, whereas maybe you usually have a little bit of margin, if you get out of the house kind of late, we got a lot to pack in next week and we're going to start right off with baptisms. So um, obviously I'm the pastor, I want you here on time, but I don't want you to miss that. I think it's going to be really meaningful to you. The two testimonies that you're going to hear are going to be pretty powerful and potentially life-changing for you too. So uh, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1 today. We'll look at just four verses. We're going to spend our whole time in just four verses, verses 7 through 10. And I want to mention to you as well, uh, I said this kind of in the middle of last week's sermon, the vision implementation team. So next week, there is an elder meeting in which we're going to kind of figure out of those who have spoken up and said, yes, I want to potentially be a part of implementing the vision of True North Church. We're going to contact you guys, let you know how that team is solidified, and then we'll be letting the congregation at large know once that team is built. So this is my chance to tell you, you've got about seven days, if you've been playing with this idea, if you've meant to send the email or send the text or make the call to let us know that you think God might be asking you to be a part of implementing this vision, uh, this is sort of your, your two-minute warning here. So. Uh, do that please if you've been praying that way if you think that it's even a possibility that God might want you to step into a little bit of short-term leadership here to see this vision implemented you can send an email to that email address and I'll get it today and I'll let you know that we received it and then we'll take it from there there's a couple of steps between sending that email and actually making your way onto the team but don't worry about those if you feel that God is telling you to do it then follow that call please that's what we need you to do Um, It's been seven weeks today since we started this series, since we set out to apply these broad, corporate congregational principles to us as individuals. And so we started where it all begins for us at True North. It's what the banner behind me says, that it's all about Jesus. That's going to remain the central principle of our church, congregationally and as individuals. Everything we do ought to come out of our position in Christ. We finished earlier in 2020 a very lengthy series in the book of Ephesians the primary theme of which is that we are in Christ, that we are re-identified as new creations in the person and the work, the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus. So what else would it be all about, right? So we keep Jesus at the center. The next three weeks after that, we moved into the internal facing principles of ministry. So this is where traditionally you might hear a church talk about things like discipleship, worship, membership. We say these things. We say that we belong first to Jesus and then to each other, We say that we want to become like Christ in our thought and in our deed, and we want to behold Jesus high and lifted up. And so those are things that we primarily do next to and across from other believers. Those are things that exist in a space where we are walking in step with other Christians, with each other, looking at Jesus at the center. And then we moved into the external-facing ministries of the church. Of those, there are three as well. The first that we dealt with was sharing the gospel— The idea that we have something to tell and that we need to be explicit about the way that we do that. Last week we talked about the second external facing principle of our vision, that we want to show mercy to the world. And we want to do that in a way that looks like and feels like Jesus' prescription. When he says this is what mercy is, we want to live that kind of mercy. We don't want to just have the church at large as a massive organization do a few things that we are disconnected from personally. It seems like from what we saw in scripture last week, God expects us to have our hands dirty to be a part of working that out in our community with the people around us. And today we arrive at the sixth and the final outcome of keeping Jesus at the center of our lives. And we'll say it this way, if it's all about Jesus, then we shape our community with hope. We shape our community with hope. The state of Alaska is in sort of a season of hope right now. If you've been watching the news, you might disagree with me, but here's what I mean by that. The COVID vaccine has begun to roll out in our state, and it seems like of the 50 states in this union, ours is being pretty aggressive about getting it out quickly. Our population's lower, so it's a little easier for us. Uh, But in my own household, because my daughter is an Alaska Native culture bearer, my wife and I have already qualified to begin the vaccine process. And so I went on Friday to get my first shot of the Pfizer vaccine in my left arm and I'll just tell you it kicks like a mule man I'm relatively healthy I think and I could not well I probably could but I did not want to lift my arm any higher than this for the next 48 hours I mean it was serious business so just <laughs> buckle up if you're going to go get it but while I was there at the South Central Foundation on Friday I realized that that there's kind of a—I a I don't know how you would want to describe it maybe a movement to this thing like it, it felt more than a trip to the doctor's office to me As I was sitting in the waiting room, as I was interacting with the different nurses and the people who were there just to volunteer in their free time, there was this sort of electricity in the air because everybody who was there, whether they were receiving the vaccine or administering it or just taking names or just managing the Spotify playlist that was playing in the lobby, I talked to that lady for a few minutes, they were just pumped because everybody felt like they were a part of something. They They were able to participate in something that was gonna make change, real lasting change that was gonna impact the lives of people for good. The nurse who put the needle in my arm, and maybe you'll think this is a bad thing, but I thought it was cool, she had just come off of a 12-hour shift the night before and had come right to the South Central Foundation to volunteer her own time, unpaid, to get this vaccine rolled out because of how important it was to her. After I receive the vaccine, you have to sit in a room for about 15 minutes so they make sure that you don't go into anaphylaxis, which is a good thing, I think. And so you're just sitting there doing nothing, and I'm looking around me, and people are like high-fiving each other, people who've come in pairs, families are hugging each other. There was one lady who was weeping because she's been unable to make physical contact with her family for almost a year because she herself is immunocompromised. And there, there was a sense to me in the room of something between a jailbreak and a revival happening. I mean, everybody just, the future was so bright. People who don't know each other are so glad to see each other. We all felt like we were in this together. And I I don't know if I've ever experienced that before in my life, not really. I mean, I've seen it in movies, right? We've all watched Remember the Titans. You know what it's like when the underdog finally gets some momentum and things are getting better. But to have personally sat in a room full of people who have nothing else in common but this thing that's giving them hope, and to think that because of what they are participating in, because of what they've been given, they're going to be able to see lives changed, people set free, people have access to life who haven't had access to life for a long time. That sounds like church to me, at least on paper. It sounds like by definition what it should probably look like if you and I really believe that we have a hope that is transformative, but I've been going to church for about 30 years, and I can't put my finger on any one congregation I've ever attended where that's normal. We have high points, We have like a week maybe where there's a big tent revival. The old school Southern Baptist Church I grew up at, we met outside for seven nights in a row as a kid. It was terrible, but the adults seemed to be into it. So we did it every year. And sometimes you would walk away from that or a summer camp experience or a weekend retreat riding high, feeling like, yes, there's this moment and there's a wave that's bigger than me that's happening. But what I believe the Bible is prescribing is is not that we have to be like hype men for each other all the time and just constantly be freaking out about how, everything in the world is connected to God's sovereignty and bringing that into every single conversation we ever have, that could be a little obnoxious. But we are supposed to carry a hope with us where we believe that the thing that we can tell people about, the thing we can invite them into, the thing that we can expose them to, can change their life and can do what this vaccine is physically doing. We believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ can do that spiritually, or we don't believe that. What I want to do is, I want to ask you to just take a look at your Bible today, hear the way that God speaks about His own gospel as good and right, and see if it doesn't challenge your understanding of what it actually means to carry hope out of this building, out of your life group, out of your home, and into the world. I think there's a disconnect for us as Christians. I think it probably has to do with one of a couple of things. First of all, I think that we have a pretty low standard for hope in our lives. And I don't mean that as an attack to you at all. I just think mutually, the thing that we mean when we talk about hope is just like, well, I hope that it gets better. Or like I read enough of Revelation to think that someday, eventually, for some group of people, things will be better than they are today. But I wonder if you really believe that God is actively, progressively, second by second, advancing his work in the world toward a good and right conclusion. Because I think if we thought that was happening, we would hold our heads a little higher So that's the first thing, we have a low standard for hope. The second barrier, the second disconnect I think we have for actually carrying hope into our community is as Christians, and I'm speaking broad strokes here, we have a tendency, at least in these United States, to weaponize Jesus, to find a way to wield him instead of being wielded by him. And I'm gonna try to help you understand the difference today. So what we're gonna read should challenge our understanding of what God is doing in the world, and it ought to be a sobering reality check for us on whether or not we really think that the gospel that we have, this Jesus who it's all about, is as good as he says he is. So the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians says this just right out of the gate. He, he does not pull punches, beginning in verse 7 of chapter 1. He says, In him we have redemption through his blood, which is the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. As we worked through the book of Ephesians in 2020, a common theme for us was reconciliation, to reconcile, to redeem, to bring people who are opposed to each other back into a peaceful, unified relationship. And we argued week after week that that's only ever really possible Through Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the only way people who are ideological enemies can coexist and do so as companions, as a unified group of people. In kind of a cool twist, today's sermon this morning in this passage of Scripture brings us full circle to where we were a year ago. 51 weeks ago, I preached this passage as we launched into this series in Ephesians. What a year, right? I mean, to think about what we've gone through and how far we've come. I, at that point, I don't think any of us knew. I certainly didn't know the role that the book of Ephesians would play in reshaping our culture as a church, in challenging us to take our faith seriously and actually do the things that our vision communicated we intended to do. What is amazing to me about this specific passage of Scripture is that it does two things. It communicates what God is doing, but it also keeps our focus on Jesus. And so it mutually Reinforces the initial central primary foundational principle of who we are as a church—that it's all about Jesus. You can't read a line of that without some God, Jesus, or excuse me, Paul giving some credit to God for doing something miraculous. Yet at the same time, as we approach verse ten and end verse ten, we see that it being all about Jesus is supposed to get us somewhere. It's supposed to mean something. It's not just a cool idea that we embrace because it makes us feel better about ourselves. It's, there's, there's something larger than you and I that is happening that we're a part of that I think if we lived it would feel a lot like I felt when I left the South Central Foundation on Friday. It would feel like we are participating in something when we are here that collectively we carry out into the community with hope that it can be transformative, really believing that it will be. And so I think as as this challenges you, what I'm hoping will happen is it will inform not just your idea of who you are in the community, but it'll reinforce and build up how important those internal-facing principles of ministry are for us, that those have to exist, and that what we share is real and matters, and the mercy that we show can actually change people's lives. So in reading through this, I just told you that this communicates a lot of things. Maybe it didn't jump off the page to you. I want to read it to you again. This is a dense passage of Scripture. This is one sentence in Greek. And it's actually the end of a sentence that started in verse 3 in Greek. And because we don't speak Greek, we put lots of punctuation in, which is why I think there's like nine commas, which would never fly at your standardized test in school. But Paul can do what he wants. He wrote the Bible. It's fine. So we're going to start at the beginning, and I'm going to try to slowly unpack for you what this is doing, because I think this could be one of the more important passages of Scripture in your life. So looking at the beginning, in him, who is he? It's Jesus. In Jesus, we, you and I, who are disciples of Jesus, have Redemption. Redemption is a church word. That's cool. We don't talk a lot about redemption in our culture. What it means is restoration, to to renovate a life, to take something that isn't valuable and to invest in it so that it becomes more valuable than it could be on its own, to complete it, to give it a value that it didn't have previously. Okay, and this happens through what? Through the blood of Christ, which means it's only made possible by Jesus' death. If it weirds you out that we talk about Jesus dying on the cross all the time, why do we have to bring that up every single Sunday? Well, Paul seems to think it's central, it's operative. And without it, none of this is possible. God didn't just do us a favor. He didn't, like, send us a Valentine's Day card and go, hey, for Valentine's Day this year, I forgave your sins. Jesus had to die, physically, spiritually perish, cease to be, separated from God the Father in order to catalyze this process. Well, what does that mean? We keep going. It means the forgiveness of trespasses doesn't just mean we've been walking on God's yard and we shouldn't have been. What it is communicating to you and I is that we've done the wrong thing for a long time. And full forgiveness is better than some forgiveness because some forgiveness happens when I know that I was wrong and I repent for that. Full forgiveness is when God forgives me for things I don't even know that I did wrong which if you've been married or had a child, you understand is pretty much the majority of the forgiveness that you give in your life. You can't sit around and wait for the people who wrong you to say they're sorry, right? You have to choose to forgive them on your own. God is our example of that. He did it first. According to the riches of his grace communicates to you and I that God can forgive us in a way that doesn't make sense to us because he is stronger than we are. There's a richness to his grace, which verse eight says he lavished on you and I. That means that God has not been conservative about distributing this grace, but he's been generous with it. He did it in wisdom, and he did it in insight. That means that it was wise of him to be generous with grace. It wasn't flippant. It wasn't careless. It wasn't silly. It wasn't overboard for him. He wasn't wasteful with the large quantities of grace he poured out. It was wise and right for him to do that. That in doing that, verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will. So what this means is, That if it was wise and right for God to be that gracious to you and me, then that must be right in the middle of his character. That must be his plan. His plan from the beginning must have been to be merciful and kind, which challenges our common perception of God in the Old Testament, doesn't it? We think that God changed his mind around the book of Matthew and decided to try something new. But Paul is saying from before the time that the world was founded, God's plan was to be merciful and gracious and kind. And so where that doesn't make sense to us, where we don't understand that, that doesn't mean that God is confusing or that he's trying to change his mind midstream to fix what he's messed up. It means that we don't know him that well. If we find his grace surprising, if we find his mercy surprising, we have misunderstood him up to this point. And this is where this begins to challenge us a little bit, right? Our understanding of mercy might be bigger than than the dictionary definition or maybe even our own ability to be merciful or lack thereof. Paul says that this happened according to God's purpose that it's God's plan not only to reach you and I with this mercy, but this is the hope that we carry to the world. This is a higher standard than you and I have. The reason that I know that is the majority of us do not tell anybody about Jesus between Sundays. We do if we teach in a kid's class, that's great. That's fine and right for us to do. But most of us don't bring Jesus up in, in casual or formal conversation with employees, with our supervisor, with our friends that we go and do outdoor activities with, with the friends or the parents of our kids' friends that we see occasionally, with their teachers. We just don't do it. I know that we don't. I'm not trying to beat you up, but I'm telling you that, that just white-knuckling that for a week is not the solution. What we need is to have our definition of hope raised. We have to see this differently than we have, or it, we won't change. Me speaking to you from the stage can make you feel guilty for about another 25 minutes, okay? That's it. And then you can go home and forget that this happened. What I need God to do is to change your perspective of how big of a deal hope is. Paul says this was set forth in Christ. What that means is that it is intrinsic to Jesus to be merciful. Well, You get that if you read the Gospels, right? He seems to be relatively kind and merciful, But sometimes the way that we bring him up in conversation, sometimes the way that we try to apply the Bible to the lives of people around us is not very merciful. So this is why I think we need this reminder. I think it's why Paul thinks that we need this reminder, is this isn't just God the Father distant from us, far away, and setting a plan in motion and walking away. It's him staying invested in the work of mercy in the world by sending Jesus, Jesus completes that plan. Jesus is the the fullness, the, the culmination of what God has been doing from the beginning. And so verse 10 tells us that this plan has been in motion, that it will become complete when time ends, and what we have seen so far is just the beginning. That's what Paul means when he talks about a plan for the fullness of time. It's a plan to unite all things in Jesus, which means everything finds its place in Jesus. That means that Jesus binds everything together, that he's uniting all things together and he makes everything matter. And then for Paul to finish by saying things that exist in heaven and things that exist on earth, Paul is communicating that Jesus is the only way that God and man can be unified. Jesus is the only way that heaven and earth can be unified. Jesus is the only way that the physical and the spiritual can be unified. He's the only way. And every other path that every religious person is walking on this earth will lead them somewhere else. Jesus is the only way. He's the only one that can do these things. That brings some gravity into play because if we are willingly allowing the people that we love to walk a path that leads to destruction without speaking up, yeah, we feel a little bit convicted about that and we should. But what I'm hoping you'll hear and understand is that God has been working on this for a lot longer than you've been alive, and he knows how it's going to end. There is a clear destination in play, and it's reconciliation. That's the end of all things. When we read the Gospels or we spend time maybe in the book of Revelation, I'm afraid that we walk away from that experience thinking that God can't wait to punish everybody, But God says he actually is waiting to punish the people that he has to punish. He uses the word patient to self-describe because he would like to see as many people as possible meet Jesus and repent. Two weeks ago when we talked about sharing the gospel, what did Paul say was necessary if people are going to believe? That somebody opens their mouth and speaks about it. What are they supposed to say? What if I don't have an incredibly academic grasp of apologetics? What if I don't understand the ins and outs of theology? Paul doesn't seem to think that that's necessary. He seems to think that the person and work of Jesus is a sufficient story to tell to bring people back into union with God. That's it. So that makes it a lot harder for us to dodge this responsibility, doesn't it, as a New Testament church? Because We know Jesus. We sing about Jesus. We read about him. We've gone so far as to say it's all about Jesus in our lives. Shouldn't that be pretty simple for us to tell another person about? I think so. And I think that as we do that, as we show mercy, God will give us opportunities to play a role in shaping our culture. So if it really is a good idea for God to forgive people, then being forgiving and kind and redemptive is within his character and that means that we have hope that anybody anywhere can get better can be made new can be transformed by Jesus that means that there's not a single person on this earth that the person you think that is like furthest from god is still within his grasp the person that you think is a, an ideological enemy of god or of the church or is doing everything they can to undermine maybe judeo-christian values in our nation i don't know what it is that gets your hackles up that person is not outside of god's grace And for you to treat them like they are means not that God's plan has stopped. It means that you have willingly stepped to the side and said, this is as far as I will go, God. I will go no further. You have communicated a desire to show maximum mercy to all people, but my mercy ends here. If that is the way that you've lived your life, is it all about Jesus? Or is it about Jesus up until a certain point when you have to start compromising things that you've believed for a really long time? Because what I think Jesus does is I think he makes you brand new. I don't think he tacks on something helpful to the life you've already been living. I don't think his goal is to help you. I think his goal is to change you. And I think from God's perspective, you're not doing pretty well and just need a kick in the pants to get across the finish line. I think you're a total failure if you don't know Jesus. And that means your ideas, your principles, the things that guide your life, all the stuff that's not God's word, that helps you navigate and make decisions, all of your nice American cliches that you live by, they are a pile of garbage from God's perspective. I don't know if you know that or not. God has made clear what he wants your life to look like. He's laid out his principles. He doesn't need you to interpret and renovate and twist and pull and repaint and reshape and re-say what he's already said himself. So when we talk about our community, the disconnect for you and I, I think, is that the hope that we carry isn't really hope. It's insurance. And insurance isn't hopeful. My wife doesn't go to bed every night so relieved that if I get hit by a car, she'll get $150,000 in the mail. She's not, I hope not, right? That's not hopeful for her. That's not an objective that she has. She's not looking forward to that. She doesn't pray that that's going to happen. Please, God, could we get that check? Because the car started making a weird noise and I'm starting to think getting around might be a little more important than keeping this man alive. No, not at all. Insurance is what happens in a worst case scenario. Hope is what tells me that my life is good, that God is good, that there's value in little things. And I think maybe the idea of fire insurance, right? We joke about that. Maybe your uncle has a t-shirt that says that on it that that's all our salvation is, maybe we actually really believe that. I don't know. Because I think if we were hopeful, oh man. If we had an extra ticket to something that we could bring somebody along with us, a thing that we love, a thing that we wanna share with them, it would be so easy. We would call everybody we could to get them to come with us. I've got an extra ticket to Hawaii. I've got an extra ticket to a theme park. I've got front row seats to a band that I know you love. It's obvious to us that we share the things that are valuable, that we tell other people about what we want them to know about, but we're really, really quiet about this Jesus who's supposedly at the center of something, our lives. So what I want you to grasp, church, is that God being merciful to us when we are deeply wrong that that's like the most basic form of our relationship with Jesus. I said this to you last week and the week before. Mercy, right? Mercy is the operative thing that God does for us, to us, that even allows us to know he exists. Mercy. So mercy should be the primary indicator that we have been transformed by Jesus. Forgiveness. 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 Saying to another person, I forgive you. I won't hold this against you. I won't defend myself from you. I won't hold this over your head the rest of your life. That's supposed to be one of the primary indicators of Christianity. Not the doctrines that are most important to us. Not the theology that we think we can explain. Not our ability to turn right to the right book of the Bible when the pastor says we're going to be in Ephesians today. Those things are fine, whatever. But our merit badges are silly, I think, in God's eyes. And I think that if we're not people who've been marked by willingly, actively, aggressively showing forgiveness, we just shouldn't expect any transformation to happen. Because anything else that we think our Christianity offers our culture, they can get somewhere else and it's cheaper and easier than our version is. But mercy is the only thing we have that nobody can get anywhere else. That's it. More rules, pick your religion, and the other ones are easier, and they'll tell you that you get a lot more in the end than ours does. In our version, you follow the rules and you wind up with nothing but Jesus, which doesn't sound that good if you don't like him. It seems boring, right? I mean, I'm being serious with you. If you think it's a reward, if you think it's a good moral life, if you think it's some kind of thing you're going to gain in your life today before you die, an advancement in your career, money, health, there are other and faster and better ways to worship yourself in the name of a deity than Christianity. But what Christianity can give to people that they can't get anywhere else is new life, forgiveness. It's the only thing Jesus preached. So that's our standard for hope. And when our standard for hope is lower than that, then we're peddling something cheap in Jesus' name. We have a really good story to tell. We shouldn't be afraid. We don't need to spend our time worrying about how this gospel is going to be received. It's the thing that brings people to life. If we don't share it, nobody comes to life. That's it. End of story. Everybody who's saved today goes to heaven and everybody else doesn't. Easy. Easy. I know it's a bitter pill to swallow, church, but our standard for hope has to be not that it's possible that God might save someone somewhere. Our standard for hope has to be that God is actively working on this right now. It's happening. Second by second, as you sit in this room, God is reaching across the world and redeeming human souls. So you can participate in that or you can ignore it, but it's happening. It's not possible. It's definite, is what Paul says in these verses. Jesus is our only hope. He's been working on this plan since before time began. And I think, I hope this is true for you, that if it really is all about Jesus in your life, then then this 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 is what you hope. This is what you expect in your life. Like every time, maybe you haven't had these experiences, but I've had all of them. Every time that you've gone to bed at night, really worried because you feel the guilt of your sin that day, or every time somebody in Jesus' name at a church has approached you and challenged your hair color or the clothes that you're wearing or your tattoos, or every time that a person in Jesus' name has further impressed a law upon your life that condemns you, haven't you known deep down in your soul that that can't be what God is most concerned about? Don't you sense that when you're in communion with Him, that these little, petty, trivial things cannot be the things that have, have got the heart of God totally enraptured? There has to be more than this. There has to be more than what our Christianity devolves into, especially where the rubber of our Christianity meets the road of the world. There has to be more. Maybe you don't need that. I need that. I need to know that there's hope in my life that's bigger than how good I can be, how right I can get it today, how careful I can be with my behavior. Those things are symptoms and fruit of a genuine relationship with Jesus, but they're not the reason that Christ died for me. He didn't give his life so he could tinker with me a little bit and then send me on my way. He gave me his life so I could have real hope. Ephesians 1 is telling you and I that there is a good reason to join Jesus in what he's doing because we know how this all ends. Maybe it's not clear yet to you, but I believe that God's master plan for the city of Anchorage is to find its place in Jesus. How amazing would that be? And it seems so unlikely to you. You're probably rolling your eyes in your head. You're too nice to do it physically, but you're thinking, yeah, right. When has God ever redeemed an entire city? Well, Nineveh, you know, maybe if you read the book of Jonah, it's happened. I'm just saying, it's happened. God can do what he wants. But I believe that's true. And I think when we talk about shaping our community, I'm not, I don't, there's no social movement that we just hitch our wagon to in the interest of hoping that we can make people's lives better. Specifically, what we are hoping to do is help every person in the city find their place in Jesus, to be reconciled into his body, right? So that's it. That's easy. It's a real narrow focus that we keep. We can stay laser-focused on that. And then we can try to work it out. We can work on that together. This is the, the large task that's ahead of the vision implementation team of our church, is finding a way to actually do this and not just say that we value it. One of the temptations that you and I will experience, if we believe that our city or our nation or our country, or I already said that, but our, the whole world is supposed to find its place in Jesus, our temptation will be to shortcut the process that Jesus says that it takes to do that. We will be tempted, and many Christians many times have given in to this temptation, to demand Christianity from non-Christians. We get the order of operations wrong. This is what I mean when I say we weaponize Jesus. Weaponizing Jesus is saying to people who don't know Jesus, you've got to live like Jesus without introducing Jesus himself at all. It's taking the law and pushing it down people's throats with none of the warmth or the personality or the tone or the mercy of Jesus involved at all. Which maybe you don't know the Bible that well, but Jesus did that a sum total of zero times in his ministry when he was on the earth. He never demanded more law following from anybody. In fact, he introduced the law to people by way of himself. The whole Sermon on the Mount is him reinterpreting strict black and white do's and don'ts as heart issues. And then he decides he's gonna fix those things by dying in our place. So what amazes me about him is he doesn't just identify a problem, he provides the solution every single time. But sometimes we expect people who don't know Jesus to still make good moral decisions or to value what the Bible says is valuable, and this is not the way. To be specific, passing tenets of Christianity into law, this is not the answer that solves a sin problem in the world. It doesn't reconcile people. Forcing schools to teach the Bible would not fix this. Stopping to pray before sporting events is fine, but it's not the answer. This is about what we bring to the culture, church. It's not what we impose upon the culture. I want to say that again to you. Shaping our community is about what we bring to the culture. It's not about what we impose upon the culture. And I pray to God in heaven that you have the emotional intelligence to know the difference between those two things because they feel totally different. Weaponizing Jesus is when you and I appeal to his divinity or his authority or his judgment in order to scare somebody into submitting to him. Fear of what might happen is not a very good motivator when Jesus is on the earth. That's another thing he never ever does is threaten people into submission to him. When we impose the standard of Jesus on people who don't know him, we're asking them to submit to law and really what we're encouraging is legalism. We're not encouraging Christianity. And I don't think this is just a bad idea, I think this is something that you and I will actually be accountable for when we stand before the Lord. I think we will be accountable for how we used or did not use the gospel, the tone that we used, the way that we spoke. Jesus does not need you to defend him from the culture. Jesus does not need you to stick up for him. He doesn't need your help. And if you want to shape the community with hope, you're going to have to let go of maybe your self-identified responsibility to guard the gates of heaven. Here's what I mean. I think there's an unhealthy obsession in a lot of conservative churches with what we call apologetics. And I think that Churches who, from my perspective, see Bible verses as bullets that can be shot at culture in order to protect conservative values have tried to figure out ways to make the Bible more aggressive, more polarizing, more in-your-face, more intense, and, and less kind, less winsome. Over 100 years ago, 140 years ago, British pastor Charles Spurgeon saw the same thing happening in churches in and around the city of London. He identified that this was happening. He made an argument multiple times that churches were spending so much time trying to defend the gospel, quote unquote, that they were not actually preaching or sharing or living the gospel. Here's what he said. I want to read this quote to you. He says, A great many learned men are defending the gospel, and no doubt that it is a very proper and right thing to do. Yet I always notice that when there are most books of that kind, it is because the gospel itself is not being preached. Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion a full-grown king of beasts. There he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest for them, if they would not object and if they would not feel that it was humbling to them, he's being a little bit facetious here, that they should kindly stand back and instead open the door and let the lion out. I believe that that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. And the best apology for the gospel would then be to let the gospel out. Never mind about defending Deuteronomy or the whole of the Pentateuch. Preach Jesus Christ and preach him crucified. Let the lion out and see who will dare to approach him. The lion of the tribe of Judah will soon drive away all of his adversaries. So what that tells me is that the closest any of us as Christians is called to get when it comes to safeguarding or gatekeeping the church is when sometimes elders have to confront people who are intentionally teaching and preaching heresy. That's the only context the New Testament has for us standing our ground as soldiers of the New Testament church to make sure the culture doesn't encroach upon the church. It's the elder's responsibility to figure out what the doctrine is and isn't supposed to be. So what that tells me is that (laughs) short of teaching and preaching heresy, to use the New Testament as an example, your life can be pretty messed up without it justifying somebody coming to you and kicking you out because you're not enough like the rest of us which means the boundaries for finding your way to Jesus are much broader than maybe we've made them by weaponizing this Christ, by starting the conversation with all the problems you have and how far God must want to be from you because you smell so bad and your life is so horrible. Who would want to be connected to you? Fix these things and then you can come to church. I don't think so. Jesus touched lepers. He just did it. He just touched them on the skin with leprosy. With a life changing disease that would cause anybody who got it to never fit into society again, and he touched their bare skin with his bare hands. Are we gonna follow him? Or are we too afraid of something else? Is it all about Jesus or is it not? Are our eyes on something else that's church like or maybe is a little bit like God? We don't, what I'm trying to communicate to you is we don't have to have this mindset that we're fighting a losing battle. A culture war is a war we've already lost. A political war is a war we've already lost, church. If you can't tell, you've lived through it the last 18 months. Nobody's winning. So, why are we continuing to enroll ourselves in these different ideological armies? It's never going to change. No Christian has ever found their fulfillment by finally getting the right person in office. Never. It's never happened. No Christian has ever found their fulfillment in anything that wasn't Jesus. And the people who have known him best have lost everything else. And I know that you've heard this before. I know that you've heard to live as Christ and to die as gain. I know that you've heard in Hebrews where the writer of Hebrews says, you, you gladly allowed your property to be plundered in the name of Jesus. You're familiar with the ideas of persecution and oppression, but my fear is that you think that those things can only ever happen in third world countries. Your life as a citizen of heaven is no longer yours. And so anybody can take anything from you and Jesus will make sure that eternally you are just fine. Does that raise the bar a little bit for what hope means in your life? Does that seem like something compelling that you could tell somebody else who has real problems that are consuming every minute of their life? I want to come back to Friday. The South Central Foundation, I'm sitting in there and I'm watching people celebrate being given their lives back. Really? That may sound dramatic to you, but I, I was in there. Tears, weeping, shouts of joy. People, You know how people, modern people process any emotion. They have to take a video of themselves so they can watch it later. People sitting in the, they're just speaking to themselves on camera so they can watch it or send it to their kids or whatever. And they're just exuberant. They're overflowing with the possibilities of what this could mean for their future. And I thought, how gross is it? <laughs> that maybe I've died on the hill of Judeo-Christian values in a way that has stolen from me and another person the opportunity to live every day like that. What a gross concept that I think I have something that I have to go to war for instead of believing that Jesus is on his throne and he is already reconciling all things to himself. Church, this doesn't mean that there aren't going to be low points in history. This doesn't mean that as kingdoms rise and fall, all of it necessarily a moral step toward the end of things. Things are gonna be awful for us along the way, and we're gonna have to make challenging choices day to day about what we stand up for and what we don't. What I am telling you is that when it it, it comes to your hope, the thing that you're gonna carry to the world, the thing that's gonna steer the ship of your life permanently, only Jesus belongs there. Anything else is a compromise, and it's not a, oh, it's a moral compromise and God's gonna be mad at you. It's a, it will sink the ship of your life 100% of the time, compromise. I don't need you to be better. What an irony if that's what you walked out of here hearing today. Neither God nor I need you to try harder or be better. What we need you to do is change the way that you believe in your heart. Accept the hope of Jesus. Paul said it. He said that in him, all things find their place. He's reconciling all things to himself. He is doing it now. It's active. It's present tense. And that is the story of this church in this community. That is the hope that we share Shaping is motivated by extending the whole story of the Bible. God has always been working to redeem people. And I think if we believe that, if we really believe that God was at work in the life of everybody that we came into contact with, I think it would change the way that we live. I think instead of seeing our testimonies as this sort of cold turkey PowerPoint presentation of a God that nobody cares about, I think we might think it's just the next step in the story of a person that God's already been bombarding from all sides. That's what I hear every time I hear the testimony of an adult. Is it wasn't one moment that they stumbled into a church drunk on a Friday night and the pastor happened to be there cleaning the pews? There's movies about that stuff. But the reality is it takes a lot of people over a long period of time not giving up on them before it sparks and they go, Yes, I'm ready. I've tried everything else. I'm ready. But I don't think we think that way. If we were less concerned with how the homeless might waste our generosity, and maybe instead more concerned with actions consistent with the narrative of God in history, maybe we would take the pressure off of ourselves. Maybe we would buy a house in a poor neighborhood just so we could invest in the lives of people who don't have what we have. Maybe we would choose a different school for our kids. Maybe we would choose a different career for ourselves. We might move far away from our families or we might stay right where we're from even though we don't want to. We might cross political party lines. We might be so bold as to intentionally cross racial lines, personal safety lines in our lives in order to bring something of value to people who have nothing to offer us because that's what God did. God brought something of supreme value to people who have nothing to offer him. So if it's all about him, that's what our lives are gonna look like. And I think God's gonna answer that desire in us. He's gonna show us neighborhoods and villages and cities that need ambassadors for a better way, who tell a better story than money and success and beauty and power. This is not just about what we can do at True North, it's not just what God's gonna use us to do in Anchorage, those things are true, but this idea that we carry a gospel that is transformative, this is gonna be the sum total of the value of any ministry we ever do for the rest of our lives. Whether we believe this or not, this will be the single most catalyzing and empowering thing if you can accept it, that there truly is something happening bigger than you all the time that God is gonna bring to a conclusion. It'll change your life. So I hope you'll do that, I hope you'll weigh that, that you'll understand that you're not just the church in this room, You're not just the church as long as you live in the city. You carry the church of Jesus Christ, the body of our Savior, with you. And what the Bible expects is for you to live like that. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we have nothing but you. You have nothing but you, nothing beside you, nothing outside of you. We have no hope in life or death other than you on the cross in our place. And I pray, God, that you would challenge the rhythms of our life with this idea, that you would invade our days today, starting today, starting this afternoon. Would you just pester our brains, pester our hearts, God, with the concept that we've not embraced hope. And would you give us the confidence to just stand up, to just stand tall and and believe that we are free, that the work that you did is a finished work, that there's nothing to be added to it, that there's nothing lacking in it, but that you have done all that ever has to happen for us to be able to disconnect ourselves from the ebbs and flows of every part of being a human being on this earth and to walk a different way and to tell a better story. God, none of us wants to be isolated. Your word identifies us as aliens on this planet, aliens in our culture, in our city, in our jobs, sometimes even in our own families. But I pray that we would not lose sight of the other parts of what it means for you to be the center of our lives, God, that we would understand that shaping our community happens in the context of belonging. Shaping our community happens as we become like you. Shaping our community happens with our eyes on you. Shaping our community happens as we speak a gospel that we believe can change lives, that's as simple as what you did for us and what you can do for others. Shaping our community is facilitated by mercy with our hands, with our mouths, with our actions and attitudes. We want to be whole people. We want to be holistically Christ-like. And we cannot do that without you. So yeah, the bar is high, Father. We feel it right now. We're very aware of that. We're aware of the consolations that we've made with things that are less than Christ on the cross, where we've been willing to make peace with telling a story about success, or how good our kids are, or our own behavior, or the money that we make, and we are rejecting those now, God. We pray that you would attack those idols and that you would remind us, bring us back to a place where it's all you, it's only you. Father, we believe, we do, we have faith that you're at work, that you're not done, that we can be a part of that. So we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.